Good morning. It's good to see each of you today, and it's good to be back behind this small pulpit after uh, two and a half weeks in Zambia and speaking some 45 hours. There's no place like home, and it's good to be back among you uh, today. And today we will continue our uh, short series in the life of Elijah, and it's been very instructive so far. I hope that you've been gleaning the lessons that we've uh, um, identified as we've been going through. And, and today we come to a section where we see Elijah like we've never seen him before. He's discouraged. He's downcast. And I've entitled the message, Spiritual Depression. Of course, that is such a vast topic. Uh, we're going to take up the first half of chapter 19 and 1 Kings 19 today and the second half next week, Lord willing. And, and there's in many ways, there's no way we can really fully develop this, but uh, we are going to try to identify some themes, some causes, and some cures that might give us some help as we go through. So far, we've seen in the life of Elijah nothing but victorious living. He has been the strong one. He's been the man of prayer. He's been the one that has seen God move so many ways through his life. And now, as he flees from Queen Jezebel, he flees defeated and discouraged. Maybe you can think of a time in your life that you've been immensely disappointed. Maybe somebody's let you down. Maybe it's a relationship that uh, broke, uh, the, a breakup of some sort. Maybe it's a, a, a wayward child. Um, a time where you're just discouraged and you're in a season. It's not just a mood, you know, an emotion for today or emotion for a few hours or, or for a day, but you're in a season like this. And I think that's how we are going to find um, Elijah. And oftentimes when we're in these times, we, our joy is sapped. We've, we've, we've lost our spiritual joy in the Lord because we've now looked at our circumstances and we're seeking to find joy from our circumstances. And just like Elijah, in despair, we run to the juniper tree. We run to the desert. We run away from the things that are there, God's appointed means to help us through these times. God had demonstrated incredible miracles through the prophet Elijah. Fire coming down from heaven after he prayed. Rain after there had been a drought for three and a half years. God has showed himself strong. And in great anticipation, no doubt, he's expecting revival finally. Because remember why he's called on the scene. It's the religious apostasy of Israel. Oh, they've worshipped Yahweh, the one true God, but they've brought in the Baals, they've brought in the Asherahs, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's okay. It was an early pluralism, wasn't it? And God calls Elijah on the scene to say, this is enough. You will put away those gods and worship the one true God. And that whole contest in chapter 18 on Mount Carmel was very much to demonstrate that. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And worship him. Choose this day whom you will serve. And Elijah, no doubt, being used of God in so many ways, there was an anticipation that the profession that they made earlier in chapter 18 when they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There's an anticipation that revival's going to break out, that there's going to be a returning to the one true God. But as as the, the, the narrative develops, we see that that is not the case. That was a short-lived thing. We can be strangely fascinated by the weaknesses of prominent people and, 
And we, we've, as I said, we've seen Elijah, this mighty warrior, and, and suddenly now we'll see him, as I read the text in a moment, just uh, afraid and broken and discouraged. Peter the Great was fearless against assassins, but he was scared silly by little cockroaches. And we can laugh at that and say, this great warrior scared of little bugs that are so much smaller than him. And, and, and sometimes we can think about those things. Some insist on uh, going too far in criticizing Elijah, that, that he's just cracked up, he's lost his mind, and all of those things. I think that some commentators go way too far uh, with him. And we'll, I'll strike, seek to strike the balance of uh, that what I've concluded in my studies. But without discarding the discouragement over the short-lived revival that occurred in Israel, we, when we, as we approach the text, we need to be careful not to read too much in the text. Elijah is not completely terrified by Jezebel, but he's broken by the unrepentant paganism and by her continuing to call the shots in the nation. So we need to keep this historical redemptive uh, theme in mind as we move forward through here. And furthermore, we see God calling, as we'll see next week, but God calling Elijah to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where there'll be a covenant renewal there. So follow along with me. Our text today is verses 1 to 8, but I'm going to read 1 to 19 to give us the broader context. 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. So he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under the juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. And he looked and behold, there at his head was baked a, bake, a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I am alone and left, and they seek my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint King Haziel, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu, shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shippot, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elijah passed over him and threw his mantle on him. Amen. Father, we thank you so much that we could come to consider your word. We know that your word alone is inerrant. It is infallible, that it is living and active Lord, that it searches our hearts, and we pray, O oh God, even as we see the prophet going through this discouragement, Lord, may we search our own hearts, that we might discover the remedies that you would have for us even this day. Lord, remove distractions. We pray that you'd pour out the Spirit upon this place, and we thank you for Christ, the one who is ever-living, the one who is ultimately that angel of the Lord that comes to us in our weakness, that comes to us in our despair, the one who never leaves us or forsakes us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I've already mentioned that the context, chapter 18, is that full chapter. I think we took about three, three or four sermons actually to get through it, but we see God moving in a powerful way. Here's the prayers of Elijah. The fire comes down from heaven, but even the fire coming down from heaven really isn't the main event. The main event is that not only is God the one who answers by fire, but he's also the one that is gracious and gives water to the people. Their throats are parched. There's death everywhere. Cattle laying there. There's a famine in the land because of the three and a half years without rain. And so he goes and he prays rather than receiving all the accolades from Israel. That was so cool. That fire just consumed everything. Give me a high five. Where does he go? He goes and he prays. He puts his head between his knees and he intercedes on behalf of the people. And of course, he sends his servant those seven times to see if there's a cloud on the horizon. No, no cloud. The seventh time, there's a small cloud the size of a man's hand. But if you notice it, it says that, that Elijah heard the sound of a shower coming and before he even started praying. And so it's almost as though he has the ears of faith to know that God would indeed keep his promise. God was stirring the people this day. And, and to many, it was, it was just a short-lived profession. The Lord, he is God, the people said. Elijah has great faith 
Faith believes the promises of God when there's not even a cloud in the sky that God will indeed bring rain as he has promised. And we're told in James, of course, that he prayed again and the sky poured rain. He persisted in prayer. And as he persisted, the sky darkened and rain finally came. Of course, this comes in the path of obedience and dependence upon God. And, and the rain is what? It's a picture of God's covenant faithfulness to his people that he will not leave them or forsake them. So most of us know practically what it's like to have mountaintop experiences and then to be very discouraged the next day, the next week, the next season. The Christian life, as Bunyan depicts in Pilgrim's Progress, is very much ups and downs. It's, there's not this steady going, there's not this health and wealth. You just cruise on your gold-covered chariot and you're victorious over every sniffle and all of that. No, we don't, we don't buy into that because we know the Bible uses these things to sanctify us, to purify us, to, pur- to, to purge worldliness from us. Victorious times usually give way to times of trial. And we see here in our text that the prophet is physically and emotionally exhausted. Have you ever just been exhausted? Maybe a season in your life, a trip, a business trip that was very demanding or a deadline at work and you're, you're, you're burning the midnight oil, you're barely getting enough sleep and at the end of those weeks you're just exhausted And that's how we find Elijah here. God comes to him to give him encouragement and refreshment. So first of all, let's look at the first four verses. Elijah's depression described, or we might think of this as the causes of depression. Jezebel gives this threat here. Look again at verse 1 and 2. Now Ahab, now remember, Jezebel's not on Mount Carmel, okay? Ahab goes down with his chariot, You know, he he gets to Jezreel, where the palace is, and he sees Jezebel. He enters the bedroom, and then it says, "As now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Notice the emphasis on the word all. And how he had killed, what? All of the prophets with the sword. That all is emphatic here. And so you picture the scene. Here comes Ahab. I mean, he's the king, right? But he's kind of spineless. He's kind of like a jellyfish. And, and Jezebel's kind of like this wicked witch of the north or something, you know, with powers. And he comes in. And, and you know the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who sit at your table, your closest prophets? Well, Elijah killed them all. Elijah did it. Now, does he need, why wouldn't he come back as the king of Israel and say, you wouldn't believe how God answered by fire and how God used his prophet? That's not how he said it, right? He said, this is Elijah. Elijah did it. And what does Jezebel says? She sends a messenger to Elijah. We're not told why. She didn't just have him killed right then. Apparently, she knew where he was at. But What does it say? So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life like one of them by tomorrow. So there's a death threat, right, given upon him. So Ahab goes home, tells all that Elijah had done, and you can can picture him coming in as one embellished, hello, wifey, wow, what a day at the office, honey, you should have been there. Elijah really put on a show for us. Oh, just one more thing. Those 850 prophets are all dead. <laughs> That's kind of the idea. And so this, this death threat comes via a messenger 
Just when Elijah enjoys a moment of success, it's not long before the enemies want to fight to overturn it. And this is not the last time either. We'll see this. When the true prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, is raised up in Israel, what happens? The enemies come against him to put him to death. The Jews and the Romans, they conspire. Likewise, just when the gospel is making great strides under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the Judaizers are there seeking to stamp it out. And so this is, this is, this is the norm for God's people in the history of redemption we proclaim Christ crucified as the only way of salvation, and that is an offense to many people. Just go down to Balboa Park where we have a booth set up every other week and begin engaging with people and talking to them and all their various worldviews. That is offensive to say that there's only one way and to say that your Savior is the right one. Inherent in the gospel is the condemnation of the world, John 3.17. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. But what? Men love darkness rather than light. They cherish the darkness. Well, Elijah's disappointment and sense of failure led him to despair. Um, and of course, as I said, there's some of the commentators just run with this. There's a couple of textual variants that might be helpful to identify in verse 3 where it says he was afraid, that can also mean, and he saw, that he saw something. Um, Not saying, uh, so we want to just take that into consideration. The the Hebrew words are very, very close there. Um, Some translations actually have the fact that he saw. I think the uh, King James has that majority text. So whether he saw what was going on and and had, had a measure of fear, Yes and amen, no doubt. Uh, But then he ran for his life. That's another variant that can actually mean to walk around. So we picture running for his life like, you know, like I'm sprinting like a marathon, right? Uh, But the Hebrew word can actually mean walking about. But nevertheless, he does leave and he does flee a great distance. Um, In fact, if you pull out the map that's in your bulletin, I was amazed as I was studying the great distance that he travels just in chapter 19. And you'll notice up near the top, it's sort of numbered in order of the events. You see the one and two that's near the brook Kidron and then up near Carmel and then all the way up to Zaphareth. That's where he's with the widow. But remember, he's at Jezreel now and he flees all the way to Beersheba, which is about 100 miles And furthermore, when he goes to Mount Sinai, it's another 200 miles south. So this guy is traveling quite a bit, (laughs) and he's moving around quite a bit. So he goes to Beersheba, it says, which belongs to Judah. So all the way to the bottom of the southern kingdom is Beersheba. And then verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he sat under a juniper tree. So he leaves his servant. He even goes another several miles, and he sits under a juniper tree. Now, some of the commentators say he's suicidal, all of that. He does pray, Lord, take my life, but it's not as though he's trying to come up with ways to hang himself or to actually take his own life, okay? And by the way, he's not the only one that we see do this. Moses, actually, uh, very similar as well, like um, in Numbers 11, verse 15. 
when the people were continually rebelling. Uh, also, you see, with Job and Jeremiah cursing the day of their birth because of the intensity of the trials, Jonah himself that we looked at in Jonah 4 at the end there is in despair. But Elijah is not suicidal. He perceives that he does not want to die at the hand of wicked Queen Jezebel. He doesn't want to die in that way. Um, God's name would be blaspheme among the Baal worshipers. And by the way, suicide is a very, it's, it's a delicate thing. The taking of one's own life is the ultimate selfish act. And we live in this narcissistic culture, don't we? And it's the ultimate selfish act. One man put it like this, uh, Chesterton, uh, man who kills a man, kills a man. The man who kills himself kills all men as though he wiped out the whole world because he's removing himself from the whole world. There's often no thought of the ramifications with children and parents and friends and family and all of that. It is the ultimate selfish act. And yet suicide is really at an all-time high in our day. So if somebody actually comes to you and you as a Christian, somebody's sharing with you that they've struggled with this and that they've considered that, Take it seriously. Get to a biblical counselor if you don't have the tools to be able to minister to them, but take it seriously. It is all around us. I don't think Elijah is being suicidal here, uh, just to be very clear. Later, he's told to go to Sinai. As I said, that's another 200 plus miles. He's not simply fleeing for his life, but he's being led to a specific location where God cut the first covenant with Israel. And God will renew his covenant with the prophets. Now, all this doesn't negate and minimize the fact that Elijah is frustrated. He's discouraged. He's been faithful for three and a half years. Being, remember, we said every, the paradoxes are just multiplied. He's told to go to a brook initially. You know, It's a seasonal brook that's going to run out. And how is he fed? By ravens, an unclean bird that you're not supposed to touch. And then finally, he's told to go to a widow in Baal country where Jezebel's daddy rules and to be there and to be cared for by a widow. Complete opposite of reality. Widows are helpless. They need cared for, not to be cared for. The great prophet to be cared for by a widow. And yet, that's what God does. But God uses him mightily, and now he's, he's persevered. He expected to see success, and yet there is none. How would you feel after three and a half years of investing your life into like mission impossible <laughs> and it comes to the end and God has shown himself strong and yet the whole goal of it proves to be unfruitful? It can be discouraging. Sometimes we invest three, four years in a certain college degree and the door closes in that field. Maybe we invest in raising our children for a dozen years or more, and we see that they are wayward, that they are not Christians, that they do not come to faith. Um, we, you know, these kinds of things happen to us. And for Elijah, what, what, what could be some of the causes? Well, we've already identified the exhaustion, but also the isolation. Did he have much fellowship? He didn't have a whole lot of fellowship, Right. But of course, this was God's design. This, remember, these are extraordinary circumstances. We don't go and be like Elijah. Uh, these are extraordinary circumstances. But don't isolate yourself. 
if you don't want to fall into these heavy seasons of discouragement. There's spiritual opposition all around him. There's a sense of failure. That, did, I, did I do everything just right? What, did, I, did, I, did I leave one stone unturned or, or you know, that kind of stuff? Maybe it was even pride. I mean, look at verse 4 where he says, he's asking, he's requesting that he might die because why? Because I am no better than my father's. Maybe he thought, I'm going to blow my father's away. I'm going to be more successful. I'm going to be more memorable. Who knows? We don't know. We're not told that. Uh, but he doesn't surpass his father's. Well, I'm glad 1 Kings 19 is here and the other passages that speak about depression because this is the norm for us Christians that, that we go through this. And, and yes, Elijah, you need to know that you are no greater than your fathers. There's only one that is greater, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great and final prophet. He is the one that is greater. He is the par excellence prophet. He is the high priest that intercedes on our behalf when we're going through these. The one that sympathizes with our weaknesses when we're discouraged and distressed and fretting and pulling our hair out. It is Christ alone that fully understands all the ramifications of that. That fully understands every sense of what we're feeling and every fiber of our being. It is Christ alone that we can go to and we can pour our heart out knowing that he understands like even my spouse or my best friend can't even begin to understand he understands and he's merciful and compassionate and draws near in these times of despair oh why do we neglect the means of grace when we're going through these things this is when we need to run to christ to embrace him again to immerse ourselves in the word and to bask in the promises of god that he will never leave us or forsake us that he's with us until the end. You see in Pilgrim's Progress, the the palace, beautiful, beautiful picture of the church, fellowship, wonderful eating and feasting with wine and all of this, a picture of, of just God's goodness and feasting spiritually and physically in the house of God. And what happens to Bunyan's Pilgrim? They equip him with the armor of God and down a hill he goes into what? The valley of humiliation. The valley of humiliation, a place where there's doubting and loneliness. And it is when does Satan come, Apollyon? At that state. Did Satan try to come at the palace beautiful? No. It's in that state where there's doubts and questions and loneliness and all of that. That's when Satan would come. And of course, he's getting the upper hand in this allegory, this Puritan allegory. But eventually... Pilgrim remembers his armor and pulls out the sword of the Spirit and gives him a blow so that he departs and leaves him alone. We'll see that also, and later, and well, I read it earlier, but next week we'll see where twice he states that I alone am left. Have you ever felt like that? I'm the only one that's been faithful to God. And that's the way Elijah feels here. I alone am left, and he settles under this juniper tree or a broom tree and there he sits he asks that he might die he's in despair he concludes that he's no more effective than those that have gone before him doubting and thinking of his work as a complete failure uh, thinking that the nation will never change and that they will never turn back to god you know the pastoral ministry is sometimes like this you've heard of 
If you've been around pastors any any length of time, the Monday morning blues that can come. Maybe it's a, a, a an outstanding Lord's Day and God has worked in many ways, but yet doubts and discouragements can sometimes come on those Mondays after such a fulfilling day. You see, we need to keep perspective. And Elijah had forgot the big picture that there's a sovereign God orchestrating all of the events in this world. And so too, for that pastor on a Monday morning, that there's a sovereign God orchestrating every comment, every word that is said, every harsh email, all of those things that he's got a purpose behind it for our own spiritual growth. Don't lose sight of the big picture, brethren. Don't lose sight of Christ. Remember when Peter begins to get out and, and he's walking on the water and as he's looking at Christ, he's doing just fine. But then what happened? He takes his eyes off of Christ and begins to sink. When you take your eyes off the Lord, you'll sink into despair and discouragement. We must keep our eyes on the Lord. God is not done working. God is still working something wonderful within us, even in our own lives and in our own sanctification. He who began a good work will what? Perfect it until the day of Christ. And so maybe it's just your own besetting sins and the sinful patterns that you see when you look at in the mirror to be encouraged that He is working in you. You work out your salvation. He's working in you. But also in your family, those unsaved loved ones that you pour your heart out for years and years. God is not done. We need to persevere and press on. Some of the causes and signs of depression, uh, well, first of all, to define it, uh, one definition is a severe despondency, feelings of hopelessness. Uh, Sometimes there's physical Uh, Issues going on uh, along with mental, but often mental. Focusing on our circumstances too much rather than focusing on the Lord. Focusing on the fruit from our life and ministry uh, rather than the Lord knowing that He is faithful. We cannot overcome, overly weighed down, we can become overly weighed down by failure. And then looking at our own personal performance rather than the final perfect performance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to ourselves and and becoming discouraged rather than looking to Christ, the one that has fulfilled all righteousness for us. That's where our focus needs to be on the finished work of Christ. Elijah had lost hope. Uh, The proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Likewise, Proverbs 17, 22, a crushed spirit dries up bones. Do you know what that's like? I think you know what that's like. By the way, turn back to Jonah with me, our Old Testament reading. Now, to be sure, there's many differences between uh, Jonah and Elijah, and Jonah's displeasure is fueled by something else. But there is a common thing I want you to notice and I don't have time to develop this. We went through this book two or three years ago. Those are online if you want to listen to those. But in verse 2 and 3, well, verse 1, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. What's it? It's the great revival, right? He didn't want to go there in the first place. God did mighty things. It greatly displeased him. And then he prayed to the Lord, please, please, Lord, 
Was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. In those two verses, the word I and me occurs nine times. <laughs> Jonah is focusing on himself. To be sure, he mentions the attributes of God, that he's gracious and compassionate. But his displeasure and his despair is because this is not what I said. I knew better. I, 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 I. And brethren, that is often the cause of our depression we get so lost within our own head that, that, that there's mental gymnastics going on and all these arrows are pointing, pointing, pointing. We don't realize the key is to pull our head out of the sand and look to Christ who's fulfilled all righteousness and has died in my place. Ed Welch in his excellent book says, to live without hope is to live without a future. Without hope, you feel like the walking dead. And that's true. You're just kind of taking in air and exhaling air and taking in food and eliminating food. That's kind of, you're just kind of there. There's no joy. There's no hope. This is why we need to be balanced in our study of the word, to be under the means of grace. Job is also an example of this, full of self-pity, to be sure, and, and trials like we probably will never encounter. I'm reading through Job now, but He's wounded, and he's like the walking dead, as it were. Well, those are some of the causes of depression that we see in those first four verses. Now, more quickly, let's just consider verses 5 to 8. <clears throat> we see something of the cure that God provides here. The angel comes to minister to the weary prophet, revealing the grace of God. God's grace comes. Look in verse 5. He lay down and he slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And notice this time it says, The angel of the Lord came again. When you see the angel of the Lord, who is that typically? Some mysterious angel? or a pre-incarnate Christ. It is Christ Himself that has come to nourish Him, to give Him rest for His weary soul, to come and to provide for Him daily bread, to nourish Him physically. It is to come. It is Christ who has come to demonstrate what? Mercy rather than justice. God's grace has come, brethren, to Elijah he lay down, he goes to sleep, which by the way, one indication of being depressed is always wanting to sleep and sleeping in an inordinate amount of time. If you see that, you need to probe with your spouse, child, or whatever. But, he's, but this is sanctified rest due to exhaustion. He rests, his, his strength is revitalized. God's grace has come to him. Also, I would submit to you that God's grace comes to him, reminding him ultimately of the promises. Think of Isaiah, or Isaiah, Psalm 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, 
so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The angel doesn't come showing up on the scene. You deadbeat. Gosh, didn't you see how I used you? You know, is that how he comes? Comes and touches. Rest, food, uh, refreshments, these kinds of things. Mercy is demonstrated. That's what we need in times of discouragement. I can't help but to mention we just studied uh, the section in Pilgrim's Progress in our community group of giant despair, but they go wayward, Christian and hopeful, off the path. They end up in Doubting Castle, giant despair, this big ugly person puts them in the, in the, the um, cellar there, the prison. For four days they're there. They don't think to pray. They don't quote scripture. However, hopeful, the weak, the younger Christian does begin to encourage Christian as he's thinking, maybe it is better just to end our lives because that's what giant despair is telling him to do. You'd be better off to kill yourself than to wait for me to kill you. And, and Christian begins thinking like this. Maybe that would be better. I mean, look, at we've got nothing. We haven't eaten. We haven't drank. We're in this dark prison. We can't see a thing. And hopeful begins to encourage him with six important things. And I don't have all those listed now. But among those is how God rescued you from the city of destruction. You're a Christian. How God has worked marvelously in your life throughout your life. How the promises of God are true and they apply to us. And so as though you know, a climax is coming, suddenly they begin to sing hymns and then they pray. And after they pray, he remembers, I've got the key to the prison right here. It's in my chest pocket. And of course, that key is the promises of God. So often the key to pull us out of those seasons of despair. That's why we can't run from the means of grace when you're encountering these kinds of things. That's why, that's like, I just don't feel like coming to church. I don't feel like being with God's people. Well, you're just feeding the very thing that you're hoping to be delivered from. God has provided these things for us. The angel provides basic nourishment and encouragement. And the implication is it's a reminder to Elijah that this is the same God who's fed me from ravens for six months. For three years, the, the, the meal was not exhausted nor the oil, but it made a bread cake every day. This is the God that provides, and he's here in my weakness. One commentator says that as he lays down here, it's a symbolic of his death. And as the angel comes to raise him up and feed him, it's symbolic of a resurrection. But nevertheless, he is refreshed by the water and the bread. And later we'll see there's a sense in which, uh, as he goes to Mount Horeb, uh, the sense of cleansing that would take place there. He eats and goes back to sleep. Uh, with perseverance, the angel comes again and again, and ultimately he's directed to go to Mount Sinai. So again, he's not running from Jezebel now. It's like if he was in Los Angeles and, and he was running down to San Diego, he's already 100 miles away. And so now he's told to go 250 miles deep into Mexico, where Mark Smallwood was somewhere uh, down there uh, the last few weeks. But you know, it's, it's, he's going under the direction of God to go to a certain meeting place to meet with God, which we'll see next week. Well, let's draw uh, some concluding applications. <clears throat> If you're depressed, and if you went, go to your doctor, your doctor will probably ask you two or three questions and then give you a prescription for one or more drugs. 
with very, very little investigation and all of that. I'm not in the position to say that all antidepressants and all of that are bad, but I am in a position to say that if you're running to that before running to the Lord, it is a sorry, empty substitute. Run to the Lord first. Those depressed often are not thinking rationally. Everything seems to be exaggerated. And of course, the uh, pharmaceutical industry has capitalized on this. You must get your eyes off of yourself and get them back on God and as you're a Christian on Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I've been assuming most are Christians, but I know there's some here that aren't. Then to look to Christ as the only solution, as a suitable Savior, to see that He's the one that died on the cross. And so much of depression is fueled by what? A guilty conscience of what we've done. And when we believe in Christ, all that guilt is taken away because He took the punishment that we deserved. Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on spiritual depression. Have you realized that the most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And listen, you must take yourself in hand. You, you have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself, question yourself. Then you must remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. So you see what he's saying. You have to preach the promises to yourself. And and in order to do that, you need to know the words that you can preach the promises to yourself and refocus on the triune God and his love, his Father, a love from before the foundation of the world placed upon you if you're in Christ. Christ, the one that is covenanted in the covenant of redemption to come and take on human flesh and and to live 33 years and to live a perfect life, to keep God's law perfectly, to be nailed to a cross and to take all of God's wrath that you deserved upon himself. And the Holy Spirit that's given as a pledge, a, a surety of our assurance that we have as a deposit that these things are true. Uh, to, to refocus on the triune God and his role in your salvation. To listen to Charles Wesley 305 in our red Trinity hymnal, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. A bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears before the throne my surety stands my name's written on his hand to have that kind of confidence that your high priest and your savior resides in heaven victoriously for you and praying for you another way to lift ourselves out of our discouraged, depressed estate that tends to focus on self is to get outside of ourself and love others, to pour yourself into the lives of others, your fellow church members, even those outside, to pour yourself into their lives. And then to hope in God, as the psalmist, Psalm 42 and 43, very instructive, as he's saying, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And then he's, ha, hope in God. And I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. To keep short accounts, this is key. Short accounts of your sin before God. 
confess your sin to God. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You remember David, Psalm 32, I think connected to that whole Bathsheba situation. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, but then I confessed my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. He already knows it. (laughs) Confess it. Come clean before him. Tim Keller says, the more you see of your own flaws and sins, the more precious and electrifying and amazing does God's grace appear to you. I hope God's grace is electrifying to you. It is undeserved. You can do nothing to earn His grace. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by faith, through grace, through Christ alone. If you're outside of Christ today, run to Him. Don't hesitate. Flee to Jesus. He's merciful. He's gentle to those that confess. I've got no good works to make me acceptable before you, but I trust in your work, O Jesus. See your poverty. You've got no good works to offer to him and run to him. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for the life of Elijah. We thank you for this section of scripture. We thank you that it can be instructive to our own hearts because, Lord, we do ebb and flow and rise and fall. And this life is a life of difficulty. Though we land and live in the land of prosperity, there's so many disappointments and discouragements. Oh, Lord, would you draw near to us? May we see more of Christ. May we love him as our great high priest, the surety that stands and actually sits at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we pray that you would help us to realign our focus on where it should be. And Lord, to invest in the lives of others, to love the brethren, As we know, as we look to the right and to the left, we see a brother and sister for whom Christ died. So Lord, may we love unconditionally and without hypocrisy. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.